We're gathered here this morning to worship God. And uh, personally, I feel like we've had already a lot of opportunity to do that. So closing our Sunday school with the thought of uh, all the blood in the world, there's only one blood that was sufficient. And I just worship Christ for what he has done for my redemption, the redemption of his people. And also meditating on why very minute percentage of souls in the world that are actually uh, taking advantage of that sacrifice and the message I have this morning I think has speaks to that somewhat and uh, the title of the message is Pursuing Revival those of you that know me there's no know me well that in the last 20 plus years that has been something very much a forefront of my interests and my pursuits and and uh, I personally believe it's very much a forefront of what God wants for his people. So we want to look a little bit about the need for revival, what it actually is, and how we pursue it and maybe uh, going back a little bit what some of the uh, what's the word I want the difficulties or, or the, the things that are, are not allowing it to happen why there is not maybe revival as, as there should be I think that probably very few here this morning would disagree with me that we're living in the last days and I'm not into prophecy as some people are as far as trying to figure out all the details of what's going on how it fits into this prophetic I'm just not there maybe I could be more than I am but there's there's a certain aspect of prophecies of the last days that are very real and that is that the last days there will be very dangerous times I believe we're in those dangerous times. There's a great falling away. There's a lot of deception going on. The love of many is waxing cold. The lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Spiritual, lukewarmness, apathy, and apostasy. These are all words that describe the days that we're in. And uh, there's a tendency that I myself could have of a fatalistic approach to, to this. When I say fatalistic, fatalism has the idea that the outcome of all events is predetermined by fate. In other words, uh, since we're living in the last days, and since there is so much apostasy and deception and lukewarmness, etc., that we really cannot experience revival as we should because of the times we're living in. And I would like for us this morning to just throw that one out. God does not want us to look at life through a fatalistic. In other words, although God is sovereign and, and God plays a lot into what's happening in the world, but he has left a good part of the affairs of humanity in this world in our hands. And if we're not experiencing revival this morning, there's something we can do about it. And one of the, the things that I think are so important when we think of revival, we must understand the concept of cause and effect. Now, I don't... The, major part of my income right now does not have to do with farming, but I'm a farmer at heart. And uh, so there's, there's some, some concepts here that uh, if you're a farmer or, or if you understand something about farming and we're thinking about the fatalistic approach, that this concept of cause and effect, that there is a cause that affects in, in, in how we look at life. 
Let's say that we believe in the supernatural power of God, and I'm a farmer, so I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm just going to pray for a, a bountiful crop of corn. And if I pray enough, and if I'm on my knees enough, and I believe enough in the power of God, I'm going to expect at least 200 bushels to the acre of corn this year for harvest. And so I'm there praying, and I'm, I'm expecting this, but... There's some things that we must understand about corn. First of all, we're not going to plant corn in October. We're going to plant it in May, probably, or, or no later than July. And there's, there's lots of things. The laws of nature, I believe, are very consistent. You put down the right nutrients. You do the right preparation of soil. You get the right seeds, the right genetics of seed, and you get the take care of the, the, the weeds and, and the insects and the blight, whatever plagues there could be, and you make sure there's consistent moisture there, if you do all those things, you're going to have, I'm not sure what it is, 30,000 uh, seeds to the acre. You make sure you get the right number of seeds, the right placement, and you're going to have at least 200 bushels of corn. That's a given. It's because God has set these things in place, and we come along and we make sure we do those things. Now, moisture can be a challenge, especially for Shenandoah Valley. I was just thinking about this morning, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and we had thunderstorms. We had thunderstorms. If there's thunderstorms, we're probably going to have rain. And we have thunderstorms. We have thunderstorms. This one went around this way, this one around. And finally, a Friday afternoon, I was praying about this, and, and there's this concept to this. This, I think, can play into the message this morning. This concept of the Trinity. And this, this has its limits, but we think of God the Father and we think of the ocean. And, and it's not that way, but you can almost get the concept when you get to the ocean that it's, it's just endless. It's just, there's, it's infinite. And we know the ocean isn't, but it can seem that way. The God, the Father, and then we have these clouds, these glorious clouds coming. And there's billions, there's billions of tons of water in, in, in those clouds. And we see these clouds coming up, we say, well, th there's hope here. But unless there's rain, you have, can have these billions and billions of tons of water in the ocean. And, and we lived in Peru for a while along the Pacific coast. They have like a quarter inch of rain a year some places. And it's right alongside of this tremendous abundance of water. But there's no rain. And it, even though the, fer the, the soil is as fertile as could be, it is completely barren of vegetation. And so the Holy Spirit is the rain. So we'll leave that and we'll come back to that a little later. So we'll get back to this, this idea of cause and effect. There's some people that could be praying and they're on their knees and they're asking for revival and they have this concept that revival can be some kind of supernatural thing that God just somewhere for some reason decides to just pour out his spirit upon a certain place. It's not how it works. Cause and effect. And someone has said, and I believe it's true, that the laws, the supernatural laws of cause and effect are more consistent than the natural laws of cause and effect. And we used corn as an example. Uh, if, if we understand the, the, the natural laws and how this works and we follow those, the, the results are very predictable. And in the supernatural, we're thinking especially about revival this morning. There is a thing of cause and effect. And so... For us this morning, if we want revival, we have to look at what the, what the causes are that, that bring the effect of revival. And if we can, as God's people, consistently do that, then we can predict there's going to be revival. So we want to talk about revival a little bit, what revival is, and maybe just a tiny bit what revival is not. Revival's not revivalism. There's uh, revivalism that's out there. That's the idea that we can get all hyped up and emotional and, and, and get some hyped up preaching and we're going to have revival. Well, that's not revival in itself. I'm not saying that true revival isn't 
involved emotion as it does. Uh, revival is not a series of meetings. You could say, well, for October, uh, the week of October so-and-so, we're going to have a week of revivals. And does uh, that mean we're going to have revival? No. It's just the terms we've gotten for explaining that we're having a week of meeting and, and we're sure hoping there's going to be revival. But there again, unless there's a cause and effect, then we can go through the week and at the end of the week there won't be revival. <clears throat> So the re revival is, I'm trying to get this in a nutshell. Revival is God visiting his people. Uh, a, a vivid awareness of his presence. And I, I think this morning I'm sensing, I believe, that there is an awareness of his presence. We know that, okay, so we have God the Father. He's up there. He's on his throne in glory. We have God the Son, he's there at his right hand. So which part of the Trinity is down here on earth? And we know the answer, it's the Holy Spirit. And he's dwelling in our hearts. And I believe that the Holy Spirit, if, he, if, if the hindrances are taken away, you're going to see tremendous revival. Okay? So that's the cause and effect. That there are... If there's not revival, there's, there's things that are holding back. Uh, I want to get ahead of myself, but the, the Holy Spirit, uh, there's, there's a man that was seeking revival, and he, he was studying up on this, and, and he came to the, the concept, the more he could grasp of what the Holy Spirit is and what his work is, that's what's needed for revival. And he, he had a margin Bible, and he just went along, anything he could find in Scripture, starting from uh, Genesis on through what the Scripture had to say about the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, maybe some of you have heard of him. We're, we're going back about 120 years, uh, Jonathan Goforth. Uh, and uh, he uh, experienced tremendous revival. And he's a missionary from uh, Canada, a missionary over in in China, but when he first really saw the Holy Spirit just bringing revival was when he was preaching in Korea, and there was thousands of people that were getting right with God and, and getting saved. And then it, that came moved over to China, and the same thing happened. And so he, he came back to Canada expecting similar results, but the groundwork wasn't laid, and, and it did not happen. The same... Uh, God's using this man as an instrument of his power, but somehow the soil wasn't prepared for it to happen in Canada as it was in Korea and in China. So that, that's revival. Uh, so the, the presence of God, if you get people in the presence of God, and, and this morning... I can get carried away with this thing, but uh, we're kind of the, the Sunday school lesson skipping over some verses in, in Hebrews 10. Next Sunday it skips over. But it talks about Christ being the one that rent the veil. So we have the, the, the Holy of Holies and, and the presence of God was behind that veil. when He died on the cross and a the moment he said it is finished, that veil was rent and, and the Holy of Holies was open before all. There's some tremendous things here, but I, I believe, and maybe sometime, I was thinking of preaching that this morning, but maybe sometime I have the opportunity where I believe we have a Holy of Holies, which is the spirit, our spirit uniting with the Spirit of God. But there, the, the, the veil is the flesh, and if the flesh is in the way, then the veil to the presence of God, the also presence of God is, is hindered. When, when the flesh was done away with, in, in the person of Christ, that's when, when the veil was rent. And I believe there can be a veil in my life, in the life of each one of us, and, and if that veil is there, it's, it's our carnality, it's our flesh, it, it's, it's the things that aren't pleasing to God that, that keep us from entering into that holy of holies. 
So that, that's a very brief summary, but I think it plays into what we're looking at this morning. If, if we as God's people can, can dwell in the presence of God, we have the example of Moses up there on Mount Sinai, and he came down, his face was aglow. Why? Because he was dwelling those 40 days in the presence of God. And what an awesome thing. And, and in, in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about the New Testament being more glorious the ministry of the New Testament be more glorious yet than what Moses had there in Sinai. So there's some tremendous things that I see out there. And it, it all plays into the topic this morning of revival. So when you have the presence of God in, in, in a tremendous way, it results in the conviction of sin. The people that aren't right with God, they get in, into the presence of a holy God and they they become aware of their own sinfulness in a new way. And they become aware of the righteousness of God. And there's such a false concept of the righteousness of God where people think they can live in sin and somehow God's going to overlook it all and, and it's going to be glorious, we're going to go to heaven. No. As we get in the presence of God, we see how he hates sin and, and he, he cannot accept it in our lives. And so people come to understanding as they're in the presence of God, they come understanding of how God cannot accept them unless something changes. And then also they come aware of the judgment of God. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was involved with evangelistic work, and the last message I preached on was on the two roads, but not focusing on the two roads, the road to glory and the road to eternal destruction, but what lies at the end of both of those roads, and that's the lake of fire, eternal hellfire, and on the other side we have glory in the presence of God for eternity. And how much I just long to bring the presence of God where these things are real. Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if you heard of him back in the 1700s, people were grabbing their benches because they felt like they were on the edge of, of the lake of fire and they needed to do something. The, the, we need to bring people in the reality of God and, and, and the reality of what come, what's lying before if we're not right with God. And that's to me is what revival is. We have some Old Testament uh, examples, and I'm not going to turn to them. We have 2 Kings 22 and 23, that's Josiah, King Josiah. I think in a personal way he experienced revival. There was so much ignorance in his time of, of, of God and who he was and all the sin that was involved. And this man just did tremendous things to, uh, to bring people back to God. It seems like he and his personal life did, and he, he brought it into the congregation of Judah, but it was not uh, as soon as he's off the scene and it disappeared and judgment was, was close by. And I've, I've wondered where that could be, where we're in the end days, judgment is close by, that God would long for his people to get a hold of these principles of revival where they're still, before the end comes, there's still an outpouring of his spirit where, where we can see the church of God powerfully doing what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, we have also in, in uh, the time of uh, Hezekiah where there was the temple had been closed. The, the, the temple was just full of dirt and, and neglect. And he went in there and they went in there and they cleansed the temple. And, and they, they took, carried out all the filth and, and they put back in the, the, the system of sacrifice that was so important for the day. And on a broader level, and still in the Old Testament, we have the, the time of Ezra, where we have these people coming, and the law is being read, and, and the people realize that the, 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 the marriages, the wives they have, were not legitimate because uh, they weren't following after instructions God had given. And, and people were willing to do that. They were willing to pay the price and, and to separate uh, these illegitimate marriages in a way that it was costly, but, but people were getting right with God. If you, if you want to understand something about revival, just read Ezra chapter 9 and 10, and, and it will help us understand. 
And then in the New Testament, this is the era we're living in, and I'd like to maybe go over some of these, uh, these verses because uh, I believe it's, they're very key concepts of revival where it will be here in the book of Acts. Day of Pentecost, we'll start there. These, these passages I've read so many times and I don't want them to ever lose the effect, the impact that, that I went from these verses. Acts chapter 2, we have, this is the day of Pentecost. We know they were, we'll look at some of the things that led up to this later. But we have Peter getting up and he's preaching. And in verse 37 it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and unto the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So we have people that are under tremendous conviction for their condition. They realize something has to happen. What shall we do? And then Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call. And with these and other, many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine that? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and they had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man, man had need. And they continued daily, one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is revival. And we look at this and we tend to think, wow, this was some super extraordinary event that took place. And, and very true, but what would happen if we would look at this and say, this is really God's prototype. This is really what God wants for his church. And this is what we should expect for his church. Is that too far out? Is that too far beyond our our reach and comprehension. Well, I think it would be a start if we would say, what would it take for us to see what, what they had there? They were ordinary men just like you and I, but God was working in an extraordinary way. Uh, moving on down, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 26. This is uh, after the healing took place of the lame man and, and Peter and John giving some explanation and speaking to the Jewish leaders and uh, I think I'll read on down from 19 on down to the end of the chapter this is revival repent ye therefore be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ I like to say here the sending of Jesus Christ in this context was the coming of the spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit that's how Christ came to those people and that's the concept we need to have for revival send Jesus Christ because of the spirit his work is to reveal Christ to the people he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you how that heaven must receive unto the times of restitution of all things which God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, in all the proper prophets from Samuel and those that follow after as many as have spoken have likewise foretold of these days ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers saying unto Abraham and thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first God having raised up his son Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities 
So this is the results of revival, and we'll get to that a little later. People turn away from their sins. And it's, it's a grievous thing to God when, when there's sin amongst his people, and it, it, just, it, it just hinders. And, and so the blessing that was pronounced on Abraham is clarified here. It comes through Jesus Christ, which is the seed of Abraham. And, and the purpose is that of him sending his son that people turn away from their iniquities. And that has to start... It says there in uh, 1 Peter 2, I think, is that judgment must start at the house of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the sinners appear? And we know the answer to that. Moving on down to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Well, maybe I wanted to just point out verse, verse 4 here. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed... And the number of men was about 5,000. I don't know how many believed, but just the men, it says there was 5,000 men that believed. The, the tremendous revival has taken place here, and, and, and the end result was people that were on their way to hell that are now gloriously saved and, and on their way to heaven. Uh, verses, uh, verse 31 to 35. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which possessed was his own and of the things which he possessed, but all, had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all goes on to say how they sold their houses and, and gave the money to the work of this church. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. <clears throat> it says, and, they, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and were all of one accord in Solomon's porch. And the rest, does no man join himself to them, and the people magnified them, and the believers that were added to the Lord, and believers were added, or the more added to the Lord, multitudes of, of men and women, <clears throat> insomuch that they brought forth the sick unto the streets and laid them in beds and couches, that least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem bringing sick folk and them that were vexed and unclean spirits and they were healed every one. So there was great manifestations of, of healings there that often goes along with revival. I'd like to mention here that uh, the event of the revival that was here will never be repeated. And all the details that happened in, in this revival, you can't expect every last detail to be fulfilled when there's revival. But the principles that you have of, of the divine presence of God, of divine manifestations, and, and souls that are, are on their way to hell and, and eternally lost that are saved, those are consistent things you should expect when you expect revival. Maybe we'll go on down a little later yet, look at one event, uh, Acts chapter 19. This is now not by the hands of Peter and, uh, yeah, Peter and John, but by the instrument of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. It says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and, uh, or aprons, and the diseases depart from them. The evil spirits went out of them. Uh, let's jump on down to verse uh, 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds 
Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So the word of God is prevailing, and, and people that were caught up in witchcraft and, and all kinds of dark and evil things, that this was getting thrown out the door and they were getting right with God. I also like to think of, of statistics. Some we know that doesn't mean so much, but there's been revivals where people would go back and look. Uh, for example, I mentioned one name that's known somewhat of Charles Finney uh, back in the 1830s and 40s. They said about 85 or 90 percent of the ones that made commitments while he was uh, through the evangelistic efforts, about 85 or 90 percent of them followed through faith until they died. They were, they were faithful Christians. Then you have people like Dwight Moody, where I don't remember exactly. I'm, I'm thinking maybe it's more in the range of 50 percent. Uh, in other words, about half the people that that made commitments from from his evangelistic efforts that remained faithful. Then you have a, a modern evangelist uh, that is somewhat known maybe uh, Billy Graham and uh, I don't know these statistics aren't 100% accurate but what I read was about 2% of the ones that through his evangelistic efforts that made commitments that were remain faithful and so you think of 2% and of 98% that did not and, and the devastating results of those 98% that did not carry through with their commitment and what is the difference? I believe, and this, you can carry this however far you want, but I believe there was a lot of just human emotional power that brought people to make commitments versus an instrument of the Holy Spirit of God where, where there's such tremendous conviction for their sins and there's such a, a dealing with sin, there's such a, a thorough dealing with sin that these people didn't turn back. They, they followed through. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not a man's work, although God, the Holy Spirit, works through instruments. If he has an instrument he can use or instruments he can use, then, then the power of God's going to flow down here on earth. And if those instruments are lacking, or if they're not there, then the work of God does not happen here on earth. Does that make sense? And so the more we can avail ourselves to be instruments where God can be using us, then the Holy Spirit, and that's one of the reasons I, I talked about just really studying deep in what to expect of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And if, if through my ministry I don't see that happening like I think it should, is that the Holy Spirit's fault or is it mine? And I think the obvious answer is that we are not maybe giving the Holy Spirit the complete freedom he should have, that the, the convicting power of righteousness and of sin and of judgment, the reality of heaven and hell and, and the reality of eternity, eternal God and the reality of our sins and how it separates us from this eternal God, those things need to be real. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that when he comes, that's what he's going to do, is what Jesus said. That's up at John chapter 16. Hindrances to revival. Uh, one of the hindrances is uh, ignorance. We don't understand what revival is. We don't understand what God wants to do and how revival should work. And I believe that unbelief and ignorance are, are very closely related. That where there's unbelief, there's ignorance. And where there's ignorance, there's unbelief. And so the more we can put ourselves into understanding how revival works and what the causes are that, that bring the effects... And the more we can put that into practice, the more we can expect to see revival. <clears throat> so revival is simply giving the Holy Spirit complete freedom to work. Uh, 
and we can we can grieve him we can uh, we can limit the Holy Spirit and I've used this example already we can have this morning we have this worship service is the Holy Spirit going to be here this morning or is he going to be back in the corner somewhere and and longing to get in but we haven't really given him the invitation to do that or we can have our ministers meetings or, or our brothers meetings Where, what place is the Holy Spirit given in that meeting we tend to think of the Holy Spirit maybe as some kind of force that's out there. The Holy Spirit is a person, and we treat him and relate to him as a person. And that's important, I think, for us to understand. So how do we relate to the Holy Spirit and, and the work that's been given him in, in, in the work of the church? And there, there are different things. I'm going to mention a few in passing here. Maybe I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but there are things I believe that exist in the church that are grieving the Holy Spirit. And as long as the Holy Spirit is grieved, he's not going to have the power to work. We need, he needs freedom to work, not be grieved. We're aware that there's worldliness. There could be worldliness in my life. We're aware that there are sometimes, and I, I don't know, Peak church, so I'm not speaking specifically to anyone here this morning. That can be an advantage sometimes. But I know of church situations where there's young people, not just young people, where they're so caught up with professional sports and, and what's going on in that world. And, and their hearts are much more wrapped up in those things than the things I'm talking about this morning. You think that the Holy Spirit would not be grieved with those things? I know, well, I was not a Christian, but I was part of a church. I, I knew all kinds of, of, of batting average statistics of, of these heroes that I had, but I didn't know the names of the 12 apostles. Do you think the Holy Spirit could be grieved with these things? Pursuit of wealth and earthly interests. We get so busy, that I, I, this is a burden for myself, busy with matters that will perish. And we, all around us, we have people that are perishing, souls that are going to hell. And we're not so moved by it. And we're not so burdened maybe about the, the drought that's out there as we see the souls of people. But, but uh, in June, middle of June, how, how burdened we were because it, it looked around and looked like a desert here because it wasn't raining. And that, those things... I think can move us and we live in a material world and they do and I don't think it's wrong but but uh, maybe some of the things that are really important to God can be kind of way down there on the list and we could think about people buying these expensive RVs and picking a trip halfway around the world and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and God's programs of missions where there's just not enough funds. Could it be that these things are hindrances to revival? God sees these things and things that are so important to him don't matter and we can be involved with Recreation that in itself is not wrong, but it can be something that is what drives us. So there's a lack of time and interest for the things that really matter to Christ and the things that really matter to us, Christ could care less about. And that the Holy Spirit is grieved when, when these things are a reality in his church. And there's counter gods. And I just traveling here a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sitting at the airport, and I see and just that's pretty much for some people that are just completely engrossed in that. Is that not a god? Is that not driving people? Is there not a jealous god in heaven that's looking at that, at how much attention this apparatus is getting? And we wonder why there's not revival and why we don't have power to go into inner city Harrisonburg or wherever and, and pull those people out of the slums and get them saved. And there, there could be reasons that might be obvious. 
So seeking God in a personal relationship and knowing what it is to go into the Holy of Holies and, and not come out. Just because I spent half an hour this morning in prayer and reading and, and meditating on God and I, I need to go on and go about my work, I don't need to leave that Holy of Holies. I can stay there. Does that make sense? So as we, as God's people, spend time in the presence of God, things will change for us. We've gone through this COVID thing, and it brought a lot of questions and, and not maybe so many answers, but I had the question already where it wasn't so hard for us to, when we think of collective prayer for about a year to go out without any organized uh, a collective prayer meeting. Am I bothered by that or not? Maybe it could be avoided, or maybe it could have. I'm not sure. There's a lot of questions, like I said. But if it doesn't matter, could that not be a clue to why revival isn't like it should be? The interest we put into what's happening this morning in Sunday morning worship or Wednesday evening prayer meeting, how much that matters to me, I think, is very well understood by the heart of God and plays a lot into the topic we have before us this morning. So we want to talk now about pursuing revival just a little bit. As we get serious with God, as we move towards God, he moves towards us as we understand his heart better. And, and as we understand his heart, we make the necessary changes and, and it's leading up to revival. And I, I can't put the events completely together here, but we, we read there in Acts chapter 2 where there was revival. I mean, there was conviction, there was 3,000 souls that were added, there's some preaching, some powerful preaching, some men that were moved to make changes in their lives. What was preceding that? Okay, so we know that uh, you have the resurrection. We know that Jesus walked here in this earth, had different manifestations for 40 days. And we know that as they're standing there, and he gave them the uh, orders that he had for the church. There, there's something in, in the last chapter of Luke, it says that they were to, to wait in Jerusalem until they'd be endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus telling them that they should tarry or they should wait in the city of Jerusalem until they receive the promise of my father and I believe they did just that we know that there was 40 days ascension okay 40 days after the resurrection and we know 50 days after the resurrection we have what is it the day of Pentecost right so we have 10 days, and, and it's hard to completely put the details together, but they, as Jesus left them, as he went up into the heaven, and he saw him disappear in the clouds, and the angels came and said, you know, as he went, he's coming back. There was 120 people, and I don't know if they went right away, but it almost seems like it. Where did they go? They went to the upper room. What were they doing? Let's go and read that. Acts chapter 1. Maybe I'll start in verse 11 to kind of tie together what is explaining here. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Which also said, this is the angels, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you in hev into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room, and there abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and 
Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. And so we have the upper room here. We have these men, and, and it seems like they went straight from the day of ascension. They went and they were there. And so there's 10-day period here. What were they doing? It says they all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Then we jump over to chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven, the rushing mighty wind, and they were, the house was filled where they were sitting. So it seems like there was about 10 days where they were praying. And Jesus told them they were to wait until they'd be endued with power from on high. They were waiting until they received the promise of the Father. And I don't think they were waiting, twiddling their thumbs. There's a promise that God had given them. They were praying and they were praying and, and they were going to keep praying until they got what God told them they needed to have. What would have happened with the church of Jesus Christ if they would have ignored that command? They would have went out there and started preaching without being endued with power from on high, without having received the promise of the Father. I think the, the results would have been tremendously different. And what would happen to the church of Christ today if, if his church was endued with power from on high? What would happen if, if we would understand and, and truly seek to receive that promise that they received and, and the power that went with it? What would happen and I, I, I don't think we're at a place where we could do that. What would happen if some of us would get together here and say we're going to get into the upper room and we're going to pray? And we're not going to be satisfied until we receive that endowment of power from on high. And then we're going to go forth and we're going to see the church of Jesus Christ triumphant. What would happen? Would it be... Would it be a worthwhile project for us to undertake? Do, would we know how to start going about this project? But those are just questions I have, and, and we can be thinking of what, what God wants. So in termination here, I want to talk just a little bit about the results of revival as, as we have awesome awareness of the presence of God and God coming and, and, and a harvest. What would happen if, as a farmer, we would plant and we would put the seeds and we try to do all the right thing, the end of the year, no harvest. Well, we'll try again next year. We're going to plant, we're going to put down the fertilizer, we're going to invest in the seeds, we're going to plant, and no harvest. How many years, as a farmer, would you keep doing that until you say, we got to do something different. This isn't working. That somehow the work of Christ sometimes maybe we can look at it a little different. Think this is, well, it's just normal. And I'm, I'm glad there's a lot of things happening in the Church of Christ, so don't get me wrong. But I'm burdened sometimes where we, we don't have more power to see people into the kingdom I believe that in revival, people are brought to a crisis decision. I'm talking about revival as I understand it. The presence of God, the conviction for sin, and where people are brought to a place where they have to either choose for God or they have to walk away. And maybe in some cases, blaspheming the Holy Spirit and I, I could have mentioned that earlier, I'll just bring it in here. The reason that the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is unforgivable is because the Holy Spirit's the agent that brings us to God. And if that agent is put out of the picture, then there's no hope for that person. And I don't think that's happened to very many people, but it has happened. 
you can blaspheme Christ and, and he's going to keep on loving. But the Holy Spirit is the contact of God here on earth. And so if he's blasphemed and he's out of the picture, there is no way for a person to be saved. So the, the more intense the, the, the presence of God and the more uh, the power of God is working, and, and this, if there's a very strong resistance to that, the consequences are very serious. Re reading Revival one time, there was Revival going on, and there was this group of young boys, I think it was, and they were just cutting up, and they are trying to do anything they could do to disturb, and there was a man of God. He was in in the upper room, he was praying. And he got out of his prayer room and he went up there. He said, young men, I want you to know by the end of this week, you're either going to be saved or you're going to be in hell. And this was not the man that was preaching. It was someone that was, was doing a lot of praying. And the man that was preaching was taken back. How could he speak so strongly? By the end of the week, every last one of those young men were saved. And I don't think it was some presumptuous thing that he did. It's something that he received of God. And these men, these young men were resisting God, resisting God. And it's like, this is enough. And there have been times when, when people were brought to decision like that where they didn't make it and, and God took their life right then. I'd like to close here. It's time to close. Just one verse that familiar to many of us, the Old Testament verse. I think it's fitting we close with this verse, Second Chronicles 7.14. Some of you might know this by, by memory. It's a powerful verse. This was the dedication of the temple and God explaining a little bit how things should work. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. We'll call for a song. <laughs>